This is Think Like a Genius. Tread the line of cognitive psychology, neuroscience, persuasion, and so much more than gray matter. Let's dive in as we fall into a world of intrigue. And now, Think Like a Genius with your host, Lance Vantanar. Welcome to the Thinking Like a Genius podcast. My name is Lance Vantanar, and today's topic is about feedback loops. For those who support me on Patreon, thank you very much, as this helps to pay for additional services like transcription and also a planned forum. The goal with the forum is specifically for Patreon supporters, and that helps to develop more of a structure behind all of the content and the topics that I'm looking into, and to allow for uh, specific deep dives into the topics themselves. I find Facebook tends to be very feed-orientated, so you can lose a lot of threads very easily, and it's very difficult to feedback into previous topics and to get some kind of structured content out of it. So getting back to feedback loops, the reason why I decided to look into feedback loops is there's a follow-on interview with uh, Declan Daly, which looks at uh, feedback loops and how they're used within a working environment and how you can use the measurement aspect to help drive further behavior and, and make it a lot more positive and a lot more fun. So feedback loops are basically response mechanisms and they are used in a cause and effect process within a system. The body and brain uses feedback loops continually to manage and adapt to situations and on a biological level it manages a number of automated systems which allow you to live and to thrive. Some of the automated feedback loops can be your heart rate uh, which can be in response to a number of factors. Stress is a, what you can see is a negative feedback loop, which then elevates a heart rate, increases the breathing, and then changes the body physiology to be able to cope with the stress factor and to deal with that on a physiological level. You can also have feedback loops which relate to things like your health or your digestion, where you eat some food and the body then starts Uh, the process of digesting the food and processing it to actually uh, extract all the nutrients and the energy and to make that useful to the body. So those are some of the automated feedback loops that you that you can get. If you take a look at the negative side of feedback loops, you could think of an example of maybe infection or where you uh, become sick and the body's response mechanism to the negative feedback that it gets that there's inflammation or there's a threat to the body it'll then respond respond accordingly by either increasing the immune system to actually attack the infection and then fight off the side effect of the infection like fever or anything of that nature now getting back to feedback and how ties into learning and thinking in itself we first got to take a look at people's understanding of feedback loops so the Two of the main or two of the most well-known concepts or understanding of feedback loops is that you've got a positive feedback loop and a negative feedback loop. Looking at positive feedback loop, this works through a reinforcement of good or a positive perceived response. And it's normally tied to enjoyment, which, which works well with dopamine receptors in the brain. The 
process of a positive feedback loop helps with intrinsic or internal motivation as the positive response feeds off of the dopamine release and that's in turn motivates you to carry on with a behavior or action or learning or anything of that nature. The second feedback loop, uh, as mentioned, is a negative feedback. And in this situation, the negative or bad or adverse response is used as an indicator of what not to do or to change your reaction to that response. And this can be anything from either removing your hand from a burning stove in response to a pain or to a negative emotional response to someone being angry or sad or or at a decision or an action that either you have taken or somebody else has taken. In both cases, you can very quickly respond and change how you act and react based on the reaction or the response that you get. If the response is positive, you are then more motivated to carry on and repeat the behavior. And this motivation uh, will allow you to try variation and creativity fits into it very well. Um, as the whole action of learning and developing uh, a skill or anything that you do is enjoyment and this process is driven in part by dopamine and pleasure mechanisms and the motivation to pursue the positive reactions to what you are doing. The same process will happen for a negative feedback loop as this will lead to withdrawal or assessment to see how you can modify what you do to get a positive response. In social situations a person's negative reaction can be seen as a negative feedback loop. So imagine if you say something which is upsetting to another person and their reaction is either sad or angry or a disapproving look. Your visual perception identifies the facial reaction which identifies the associated emotion and you modify what you say to either change it or to correct your what you've said or how it's perceived. And this all leads back to various other things like uh, context and words and understanding. And that's another topic which we'll go into at a later stage. The last feedback response I'm going to look into or highlighting is a, a lack of response. Most people fit into the first two. Most people perceive the first two, the positive and negative, is because these are the ones that a lot of people are, can easily identify. The lack of although no response falls into that middle ground as there's no determination of what and how to respond or how you should react, as the lack of feedback doesn't signal what an appropriate reaction should be. Now, This can cause a certain amount of consternation as a positive and negative feedback determines your response on how you should react or whether you should do more or less of some uh, a given action. Having no response means there's no action or reaction to what is happening and it's difficult to determine which way you need to go. And if you relate that back to Newton's third law, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And this principle is very good to keep in mind when it comes to feedback loops. Now, with a positive feedback loop is obviously the more you do it, the more you get a positive feedback, the more you get motivated and it'll carry on and on. With a negative feedback, you if you get a very strong uh, negative initial action, you get a very strong negative reaction to that. And that's where Newton's law is, is a good way of actually understanding the the, the the principle in essence. 
Now, when you have a lack of response, you don't have that feedback and you don't have the indication of which way you should go, which way you should uh, react. And this complicates things because the lack of response makes it difficult to assess action and reaction. And it's it's quite interesting because if you relate it back to uh, something which I've seen a lot more reports of is that Botox has become quite popular to for, for women to look young and to stay attractive. But what they found is that the lack of facial reaction that people see make it very difficult to assess whether the person is angry or sad or happy to see you. Because people are very visually cued, this lack of visual response makes it difficult to assess the emotional reaction that the other person has to it. And there's also uh, talk where the lack of physical face facial expression actually has a negative impact on the person themselves because they can't feel the facial reaction and they the lack of emotion that they see in the other person starts confusing things and starts con- making the signals very easily to misread and i think there was a case of nicole kidman actually stopping taking botox because it she wasn't able to get the same emotional content out of her performances because of the the lack of facial movement. Getting back to feedback and learning, the other thing that you have to think about is that the lack of information and knowledge when it comes to the brain, it'll happily try to substitute information to actually fill that gap. If there's no information, the brain will try and read information into what it perceives uh, it should extrapolate information out of. And this can cause problems, uh, especially when it starts tying into some of the cognitive biases. Now, one example is jumping to conclusion. What happens is that invariably you see a specific piece of information, you see something else which is completely unrelated, you then draw a conclusion just based on two disparate points of information. And when you actually do get the context behind it, it's completely misread the situation. And that's, you could say, a a more real-time or real-world example of feedback loops and thinking. And if you then take it a step further, this jumping of conclusion also leads into hindsight bias where that when you actually get the information you suddenly have this insight oh I should have known better and that's again because you've misread the situation because the lack of information is then misrepresented and the context and uh, that you've drawn out of it is incorrect doesn't necessarily mean it happens all the time but it is something that you need to be aware of when when you are living your day-to-day life. To help make this process a bit easier, the brain uses a lot of pattern matching and chunky information to cope with quite a lot of information. And the cognitive biases do try and speed up some of the processing to make a lot of this easier. Most of the time this does work reasonably well, but there are cases where these shortcuts or these cognitive biases can make incorrect uh, decisions because of incorrectly applying the process to the information. 
The other issue that happens is that if there is too much information, the brain will go to default on making no decision at all. Is because the amount of information that's there kind of overwhelms the processing. And to make it as easy as possible, it's just like this is too much. I'm not going to. I'm not going to take an action or reaction, or I'm not going to make a decision based on the information because it's too much. The only way that you can then get over that situation is to then break down the information and to make it a bit friendly and easier to process and to chunk it down and to analyze it in smaller pieces. Positive feedback loops are very tightly integrated with dopamine release in the brain. And the brain has quite a few uh, dopamine pathways which are very responsible for reward-motivated behavior. And the interesting thing is that these rewards or the dopamine release that you get will happen regardless of the size of the trigger to actually increase the dopamine in the brain. Sometimes it could be something as small as a sensation. Other times it could be as big as information reveal or a gift or anything else of that nature. So dopamine is very tightly integrated into a lot of what you do, and especially with the with the positive feedback loops that you uh, that you use on a day to day basis. Now, if you take the positive feedback loop to an extreme, you can then also get into the other aspect of behavior, which is addictive behavior. These can be seen as both positive and negative with regards to the behavior because you can have addictive behavior which drives positive change or which is good because of the implementation of it or you're doing it for your own benefit or to improve your health or your well-being or to do something which has got a positive benefit to the world. Where it becomes a problem is where the addictive behavior is something which can cause you harm. And the addictive behavior that I'm going to refer to in this regard can be anything from excessive smoking, excessive drinking, and also things like gambling. Gambling is definitely very tightly integrated to dopamine rewards because you've got the risk, you've got a certain amount of the your personal you could say money that you put into it, which means you've you've got a you've got skin in the game, and that increases the 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 excitement of actually gambling something to get that big win or to get that that reward. When you actually put a bet, you get a certain amount of pleasure from that, which is tied to the dopamine. When you actually win, the reward that you get is double because one you've won and two you get some money back which is like a novelty factor which which then reaffirms the whole behavior that gambling is good and then when it becomes a problem is that you start becoming more and more addicted to the gambling because it's not just the fact that you're winning money but it's also that you get this affirmed behavior that ties into the dopamine which gets you into what's potentially a negative spiral because obviously you can go over the top and lose quite a significant amount of money because of this whole tightly integrated process of uh, positive feedback loop and uh, dopamine release, which comes with with gambling. A good example is horse racing, where obviously you've got a bet on a horse or doing a bit of bet on that, and the excitement of the race and being caught up in the process and then either winning or losing will determine how your response is to that. 
if we go step back and then look at feedback loops and learning, this is where things become really interesting. The One of the most interesting examples that I've seen with regards to positive feedback loops was a change in some teaching at Harvard with regard to a physics uh, class. Um, they They decided that the class wasn't progressing at the rate that they wanted to and they wanted to get the students a lot more involved in the, the class and to get them a lot more or get help them achieve better grades and results from from their the teaching and the and the material that they that they were presenting and the way that this was done is first to take a look at the material that they were presenting and to see if they could modify to actually get more engagement and to get a better understanding of the actual material that that's being presented now to make this work well they looked at a, a number of things and what they found is they had to make the learning goals very very well articulated they looked at the learning goals and then broke it down into some very specific components to understand what it is that they were trying to teach the students. So what they did is they did a formative assessment and they looked at the knowledge that was learned and the principles that were understood, uh, which allowed for an immediate feedback and this allowed for the modification of what is required to be taught. Now, this was without a built-in assessment assumption that the, the underlying information is understood. Um, now, the summative assessment that they've done is where it's no longer requiring feedback or ongoing feedback. And this can be more of an exam and the situation where the knowledge is tested after a formative assessment. So what they did is they did a survey after the course was was completed and they focused on a couple of points. First of all, they focused on how do students think about the discipline and then how do they think about learning in the discipline. And the next thing that they did is they had a, a question uh, or exam and they used a scale of one to five rating between the disagree and the strongly agree. And when they initially asked the students what they thought, they had a pass score of 43%. Then what they did is they asked each student to change how they thought about answering the questions. And they asked them to think like a physicist. And that changed the way that they perceived the questions and all answered the actual statement questions correctly, which is quite interesting because this is something also which is used to allow you to change your assessment by changing how you approach your assessment of the information. I've seen some interesting principles with regards to that aspect uh, alone. Now, as part of this process is that the two-stage exam process had a remarkable difference on the end results. The first exam that the students sat through was a, you could say, a group exam between each of the groups. I'll go into the specifics of how they set up the groups in a minute. Now, the the, the first exam was, you could say, a collaborative exam between the, the small groups. And then they scored that and gave immediate feedback to the students. The second exam, or the final exam, was a single paper which was 
sorry, I think the second exam was a just a final exam where they, they answer papers on their own. It wasn't a, a group exam. It was just a normal exam where they did the uh, questions, got the results. The interesting thing that they found with the results is that the, the bell curve for st- students passing shifted to the right. And what, what that meant is that the students with a lower passing grade, more of them actually passed the, uh, the course. And the other thing that happened is the students with a higher passing uh, grade actually had higher pass levels than what they did before. The reason why this was so successful is that when they first got the course in, set up, What they did is they set up groups of students to work together. They had two or three students working together in a group and they gave the students a certain amount of autonomy to look into the questions and answers. They then allowed the the students to come up with ideas and thoughts and insights based on their responses between the groups. So this whole collaborative process and social learning triggered a bunch of automatic response mechanisms and there's very tightly integrated feedback loops between the information that they're seeing and the 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 information that they're discussing. This whole active discussion and active learning is a very good example of a positive feedback loop which is very tightly integrated and gives you a very clear action-reaction response mechanism. And it meant that the students became so engrossed in the work that they actually enjoyed what they were doing and they became a lot more enthusiastic about the information. And it meant that they absorbed the information a lot better and developed much better insight into it instead of just active or passively sitting and trying to absorb the information. They were actively involved in discussing it and exploring the ideas and becoming a lot more engaged in the information, which helped improve their results dramatically. The whole process of actually doing the first group exam helped give them that immediate feedback and how they could modify it because that allowed them to see where they either missed the mark or they had to modify it to actually get better results over time. Social learning is a very fast way of actually developing knowledge and gauging the group's response and be able to upgrade your knowledge very, very quickly, especially if it's in a positive learning environment like that because you've got a lot of autonomy. So it's it's a really interesting insight into how feedback loops work as a, uh, as a whole. The other thing that, that I thought was quite interesting is an article by James Clear about feedback loops and he discussed it in, in a slightly different perspective. And he mentions a couple of things which the how to build your feedback loops is to to obviously use all of the the aspects that you need to help develop it further and some of the points that he mentioned is being able to uh, to measure compare and adjust now these are three of the basic components of positive feedback loops or feedback loops and how you can modify your response or your learning based on the information or responses that you get by measuring it means that if we take example of the course, because they broke down the course very clearly into what the goals were, they could then measure the results based on a very clear definitive goals that they were focusing on. 
Now, this whole aspect of being able to measure and compare allows you to get that continual assessment, and it means that you get a real-time modification of how you're learning and absorbing information. And it means that you get a fast adjustment of what you need to uh, learn and go through to actually develop the knowledge further. If you want to take feedback loops into more of an extreme example and then start looking into uh, states of flow, that's when feedback loop is in its most optimum form where it's really tightly integrated into learning and skill development. The, some really good examples are books by uh, Stephen Kotler, which is Rise of Superman and uh, Stealing Fire, where some of the more extreme athletes, when they are in a very high-risk situation, the brain shuts off the analytical part of the brain to actually focus on real-time information processing. And with that situation, you need a really positive or really tightly integrated feedback loop to modify your actions and reactions to survive. And if you make a mistake, the risk of being injured or dying is so high that you have to have this really fast response mechanism to basically allow you to survive. And that's where dopamine is very, very tightly integrated because it drives the correct behavior and allows you to modify at a very, very high speed to allow you to perform at an optimum level. So feedback loops are fundamental and it can be used in a wide range of applications when it comes to not just thinking but also skill development overall. And if you then take a step further into to use feedback loops in day-to-day life, you then get into the realms of the interview with Declan Daly, which I've referred to, where you start using measurements and scale and point systems and gamification to help make it interesting and to trigger some of the novelty effect, which then makes the whole process a lot more enjoyable. And overall, it's one of the fundamental ways that the brain actually learns and processes information. It's fundamentally a core concept uh, that is needed when you are learning Uh, and it's an underrated and also overlooked piece of vital information which I think a lot of people are not fully aware of and it's the more I dig into it the, the more really interesting information comes out of it. I think what I'll do at some point is write an article which looks into some of the various topics in a, in a lot more detail and to try and break it down into a lot more of a clearer concept. This is more of a free-flowing form where I'm trying to elaborate on some ideas and bring them all together as a, as a bit of a discussion. The whole thing that I wanted to achieve is to try and explain feedback loops and combine some of the information that I had to get something which is something that people can discuss and to find out what similarities and patterns and uh, interesting information that can come out of it. So the question or the challenge that I've got to the listeners is, how do you see feedback loops in your day-to-day life? And what feedback loops can you use? And how have you developed your own feedback loops to get to develop a skill or to become proficient at something or to find out how you're learning post this either in the facebook group which i'll have a link for in the show notes 
or once it's up and running and uh, we've got a Patreon forum, I will uh, uh, I'll set up a more of a structure so that we can discuss all the topics in there. Other requests that I've got is please leave a comment and write a review as your response will be much appreciated and I look forward to hearing from you. When you support and review a podcast like this from someone like Lance, it gains more visibility and motivates him to produce more. What topics most interest you? The best topic gains a shout out on the podcast.